Is the Ukrainian government deliberately intimidating and assassinating journalists in the country? What was the motive behind the recent death of a prominent journalist, Olez Buzina, last month? Who might benefit from the censorship of journalists and free expression? Why are Western journalists not reporting accurately on the corruption and bloodshed afflicting post-revolutionary Ukraine? Is there a familiar pattern to the killing of journalists, and how might this trend be reversed? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we continue our analysis of Ukraine on the anniversary of the Odessa massacre and one and a half years after the start of the Maidan uprisings with a prominent Ukrainian journalist living in exile in Lithuania, Anatoly Sharich. On today's program, The End of Journalism in Ukraine, a feature interview with Anatoly Sharich. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 8, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Several years ago, I attended a conference that was sponsored by the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation, UMDF, an organization which seems to be a combination patient advocacy group and a funding organization for mitochondrial researchers. During the Q&A, a mitochondrial research scientist in the audience got up and talked about a colleague of his that had written an academic paper that identified 72 commonly prescribed drugs that were mitochondrial poisons. The author had not been able to get her paper published, and I have found no evidence that it was ever published. He gave me his email address, but my several attempts to contact him by email failed to get any response. Ever since that suspicious episode, I have maintained an interest in mitochondrial disorders, and since then I have discovered many articles in the basic science literature that have dealt with drug and vaccine-induced mitochondrial disorders, none of which ever gets published in the mainstream medical journals, at least those that take advertising money from pharmaceutical companies. That comes from the article, Mitochondrial Collateral Damage, Thanks to Big Pharma. Iatrogenic Drug and Vaccine-Induced Mitochondrial Disorders by Dr. Gary G. Coles, posted May 6th. As evidenced by American military involvement and targeting of virtually every other nation across the world without a privatized central bank, it is clear why NATO and the U.S. has stepped up its attempts to destroy the new republic before it ever has a chance to take root. There is no mistake that the United States has increased its moves to support the Kiev government in overtaking the DPR as of late. 
Indeed, providing political cover for fascist forces attempting to destroy the DPR, misrepresenting ceasefire violations as the source of the separatists, and the arming and training of the Kiev fascist forces have gradually increased over the last several months. While vast oil reserves, oil pipelines, opium fields, strategic positioning, no-bid contracts for the defense industry, and military-industrial complex mineral deposits and geopolitical concerns are all known reasons for American military adventures overseas, the goal of total dominion of domination of the world by the privatized private banking cartel, complete with central banks, cannot be overlooked. With the DPR's recent move, it has no doubt placed itself in the crosshairs of the Anglo-Americans and the war machines set out to destroy any signs of independence and the use of government and banking for the benefit of the people. That comes from the article, Ukraine, Donetsk Republic Nationalizes Banks, Draws Ire of NATO and World Banking Cartel, by Brandon Turbeville, posted May 6th, originally appearing in Activist Post. Washington invents and creates, then funds with its endless money stream, the ISILs, Daeshes, Al-Qaeda's, and the repertoire grows as the masters please to fight for them, to kill for them, to produce chaos and false flags so that eventually they, NATO and the Pentagon bulldozer, can come in and make believe destroying those mercenaries that they generated in the first place. But the mainstream media won't tell you the truth. They have you believe that the Houthis, a secular humanitarian left-leaning group of Shias, and the Sunnis are fighting each other in Yemen for power, that the Saudis and their GCC cronies are just freeing Yemen from a bunch of terrorists, that the Houthis are supporting, supported by Iran, a predominant Shia country, recently vehemently denied by a UN official, so the Houthis have to be subdued. At the same time, there is more reason for Washington to put yet another blame on Iran. Once the Houthis are dominated and killed off in sufficient numbers, a puppet president will be put in place, like the ex-president Saleh or his successor Hadi, so that Washington can keep calling the shots, oppressing the country's population to maintain unlimited access to the strategic port of Aden, and to the Gulf. That comes from the article, Chaos, Not Victory, is the Empire's Name of the Game, by Peter Koenig, posted May 6th. Europeans have to decide whether the threat is Russia or Washington. The European press, which Udo Ulfkot reports in his book, Bought Journalists, consists of CIA assets, has been working hard to convince Europeans that there is a revanchist Russia on the prowl that seeks to recover the Soviet Empire. Washington's coup in Ukraine has disappeared. In its place, Washington has substituted a Russian invasion, hyped as Putin's first step in restoring the Soviet Empire. Just as there is no evidence of the Russian military in Ukraine, there is no evidence of Russian forces threatening Europe or any discussion or advocacy of restoring the Soviet Empire among Russian political and military leaders. That comes from the article, Washington's Orchestrated Conflict with Russia, The Choice Before Europe, by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted May 6th, originally appearing at paulcraigroberts.org. A Vienna-Austria court 
has ruled that Victoria Newland, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, attempted to pressure the president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, into accepting Ukrainian association with the European Union by threatening Ukrainian oligarch Dmitry Firtash with arrest, extradition to the U.S., and imprisonment on all allegations of bribery several years ago in India. The details were exposed for the first time in public in a proceeding in the Landesgerichtstrasse Regional Court on April 30th. Austrian judge Christoph Bauer was presiding on the application by the U.S. government for the extradition of Firtash. Judge Bauer rejected extradition, ruling there had been improper political interference by the U.S. government in the Firtash case. This is a violation, according to Bauer's judgment, of Article 4, Section 3 of the U.S.-Austria Extradition Treaty of 1998. That comes from the article, Secret Record Revealed in Austrian Court, Yanukovych Pressured by Newland into Ukraine Association with EU, by John Helmer, posted May 7th, originally appearing at johnhelmer.net. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Well, on today's program, we're going to be talking about uh, a major story around the uh, intimidation and the uh, killing of uh, prominent journalists uh, within Ukraine, and we've been reading about that uh, in recent weeks. I'm joined right now in helping to put this story together. I'm joined by a Russian-Canadian uh, who has uh, been following uh, the stories uh, sur- surrounding Ukraine very closely. His name is Konstantin Gulich, and he's uh, also based here in Winnipeg. And uh, he's going to be providing some translation for the interview we're about to hear. And uh, so, uh, Konstantin, uh, welcome to the Global Research News Hour, and uh, thanks for your assistance with this uh, particular story. I was wondering if you could uh, help us uh, with the, uh, the the interview that we're about to hear, uh, the uh, a journalist named uh, Anatoly Shari. Yes, that is correct. Anatoly Shari, uh, well, first of all, let me thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to discuss this important topic, because indeed the uh, freedom of speech in Ukraine had been under a lot of threats, and the, journal- uh, the journalistic community there had been suffering quite a bit. Now, Anatoly Shri is an interesting case. He was a journalist in Ukraine uh, who was uh, primarily interested in social uh, journalism. He was investigating crimes committed uh, by – was in Ministry of uh, Internal Affairs in Ukraine, and in 2000. Twelve, he was back then under Ukraine was under the rule of uh, President Yanukovych. He was forced to flee the country uh, after some trumped-up charges uh, were placed against him. Uh, he then was granted an, uh, a refugee status in, uh, in in EU, and he's been traveling Europe quite extensively. Um, in two thousand, well, in two thousand thirteen, when the events in Maidan had had originated. Uh, he became quite vocal critic of the way the media was portraying the events and the number of fakes that were produced. 
his first video had appeared soon after um, uh, Odessa massacre. I think that was a tr he basically refers it to as a trigger event for for his uh, for him to start to run his video blog, and he was, became quite successful with it. He's currently ranked as uh, number one video blogger in uh, Russian segments of YouTube. Um, his he posts probably about four or five videos a day. And to give you understanding of just how popular he is, his videos usually uh, get to maybe sometimes up to two, a couple of hundred thousand uh, views at, after one day. So he's very successful. And his work concentrated mainly on basically exposing the lies and misinformation that Ukrainian um, uh, news media pr produce. That's had been his uh, blessing and a curse because he's receiving quite a bit of death threats, uh, he, including death threats from uh, parliamentarians, uh, current parliamentarians, from uh, current government officials. He had famous spats with advisor to the Minister of Internal Affairs, Mr. Grashenko, where at one point Mr. Grashenko actually uh, said that if you were to like his video, uh, his video, that they will f track you down using IP addresses. You know, that was direct threat to his, his listeners. Obviously, it's absurd, but, you know, mm -hmm. in Ukraine, strange people are running the country. Okay, so would to say that uh, would it be accurate to say he's a, a dissident voice when it comes to Ukraine coverage or a pro-Russian voice? He's not pro-Russian. He actually openly states, and this is why he uh, has not moved to Russia, even though he says that he reviewed, received quite a few invitations to host a program there or you know do something. He openly states that he is uh, pro-United Ukraine. Uh, he considers Crimea to be part of Ukraine. And I consider personally him to be a voice of sanity, a voice of those people uh, who do not want to jump on either bandwagon pro-Russian or um, pro-Ukrainian. But let's and he, in his interview here, he basically disputes his, he says that that position is not really pro-Ukrainian, it's pro-state uh, position. So he's a voice of those people. And he, in a sense, is a voice of uh, journalists in Ukraine who right now, um, as you will hear, cannot uh, speak the truth to, the, to, to their viewers, you know. Okay, Constantine. Well, thank you very much uh, for that uh, opening, and, and thanks for the, the translation that you're doing for us. And so uh, now we're going to listen to this interview uh, with Anatoly Shari, which was uh, conducted on uh, May the 7th, 2015. Uh, hello, uh, Anatoly Shari. Uh, welcome, welcome to the broadcast. I uh, just wanted to ask you some questions. First of all, if you could... Uh, explain that you are a you're a journalist and you worked out of Ukraine and could you tell us the circumstances by which you ended up leaving Ukraine Good afternoon, Michael. Indeed, I used to be a journalist in Ukraine. In 2011, I began to have problems with the Ministry of Internal Affairs. And why? Uh, for what reason? Uh, for the reason that I and my colleagues from Ukrainian TV channel OnePlus One, who are unfortunately no longer employed uh, by its work closing, uh, 
drug selling points, establishments, legally selling synthetic drugs after using which young people were jumping out of buildings. And we were closing the illegal casinos. Um, the problem was that just like uh, drug selling points were working under the protection of the Department of Combating Illicit Drug Trafficking, so were the casinos working under the protection of the structures within the Ministry of Internal Affairs. First, I was warned uh, through the then advisor of the Ministry of Internal Affairs. He had warned me to, uh, to hold my horses, to slow down a bit. Yet, uh, we had continued our work. Uh, that's when the problems had begun. At first, there was a provocation at one of the restaurants. A person who was later determined to be an off-staff employee of the Ministry of Internal Affairs had attacked my wife, and I was forced to shoot him. Uh, it was a trauma pistol. It's a self-defense weapon. Um, immediately after the incident, I had called the police, yet I did not stop. Uh, I had continued my work, uh, closing down drug selling points and illegal casinos. After that, my car was shot up. Uh, the car was shot at, and uh, half a year later, I was accused of shooting at my own car. I was under two court indictments. Uh, there was uh, zero evidence presented, but you don't really need evidence in Ukrainian courts. The judge had refused all attempts at uh, mediation. That's when, before my final he uh, hearing, I had escaped the country to the West. Using some other person's document, I crossed the border and ended up in European Union, where I asked for the uh, refugee status. I had provided all the documents concerning my criminal cases, documents from my court hearings, and in 2012, I was granted a full so, so um, Anatoly, you are now based in Lithuania, and uh, my understanding is that there have been efforts to uh, extradite you back to, uh, or pressure on the Lithuanian government or the European government to uh, extradite you back to Ukraine. Uh, is that correct? No, that's not the case. In 2013, I was arrested uh, in Netherlands by Interpol under the requests of the Ukrainian authorities, uh, then ruled by former President Yanukovych. Yet authorities in Netherlands, after hearing the evidence against me while I was under arrest, had determined them to have been falsified. In essence, that was a second country in EU that had determined that the case against me had been fabricated. Nevertheless, in 2015, a series of articles against me ha was published uh, for which no one had asked uh, my comment. Uh, this, this was happening in Lithuania. The series of articles had appeared that had stated that I was a Putin's uh, propagandist, that I was a pro-Russian, which was completely false, uh, and no one had bothered to ask me for a comment. Furthermore, I had contacted those Lithuanian journalists, who I refused to call journalists. They are pseudo-journalists. I have contacted them and had offered to provide my comments, but all of them had refused. Shortly after, there was an official request from Ukraine at the level of Foreign Affairs Ministry, after which the statement from Lithuanian Deputy Interior Minister had appeared in the media, where he had said that my refugee status will be reviewed, uh, not because I had lied when I was applying for refugee status, no. Uh, it was because, according to Kim, the democracy had finally been established in Ukraine, and I was under no threats. Even though I'm still uh, wanted under two criminal cases and I receive direct physical threats on a regular basis from the representatives of Ukrainian government, the last such threat came from advisor to the Minister of Internal Affairs. In other words, they're, they're either trying to accuse me of terrorism or supporting terrorism or funding terrorism.
you say that they're, uh, what you're being told is that Ukraine is a peaceful country, but we're hearing about uh, the uh, incarceration of journalists and even the killing uh, of journalists. Uh, for example, Ruslan Kotsaba uh, was mm -hmm. arrested February 7th and charged March 31st with high treason. Uh, he was sentenced for up to 15 years, and his crime, as I understand it, was posting video describing uh, the uh, what, what the conflict as the Donbass fratricidal civil war and expressing opposition to the military conscription of Ukrainians. And, of course, there was the recent uh, killing outside his home of 45-year-old journalist uh, Oleg uh, Busin. Busan, mm -hmm. excuse me. Uh, so... Uh, you know, it, I, I'm wondering, first of all, where you see all of this. Uh, first of all, if you see your own case as somewhat consistent with what's happening journalist to journalists across the board. And I'm also wondering uh, if, like, when did you see this uh, apparent suppression of free speech? Where, where did it have its origin? I will voice my own opinion. I remember how I've learned about Oleg Buzina's murder. I was driving in my car uh, when I've learned of his murder. And, and it was such a shock for me that I've stopped my car on the side of the road because I consider, I mean, I had considered him to be my friend. I know that he had never crossed the line. What I mean is that he had always played by the rules. The problem with what is happening right now, the problem with what is happening right now is that the state has stopped playing by the rules. A person should not be incarcerated under the false allegations. If you do not like what the person is saying, but he is not calling for uh, division of the country, not calling for anything illegal, and Buzina never called for anything like that, um, I had never in my life said that I consider Ukraine not to be uni uh, unitary. Uh, for example, I consider Crimea to be part of Ukraine. This is my personal opinion, yet I receive, without an exaggeration, up to 100 threats a day, 100 threats a day in social media. Threats of murder, threats of watering, threats of threats that they will find me abroad. Uh, the problem is that the West, unfortunately, has stopped noticing what happens in Ukraine. I can understand that West uh, was demonstrating his friendship, providing friendly support, but no one should be covering up for criminals. It's unacceptable to, to turn a blind eye to crimes. It's unacceptable not to notice violations of human rights. When advisor to the Minister of Internal Affairs had started uttering threats at me, I had contacted the Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and... I had not received a reply from either organization. Amnesty International had contacted me, they had promised to call me back, but they never did. I can see what is happening. Everyone is turning a blind eye. When a legal procedure of uh, removing my refugee status was started in Lithuania, which is unacceptable, it is illegal to do so, uh, when a deputy interior minister had made uh, his statements to the press, uh, which he had no legal right to do, since the refugee status of the person is the confidential information, uh, he had violated the law, and it's a criminal offense. No one had noticed. And nobody is paying attention right now either. Unless Buzina got murdered, and I've read in Western press that he was a pro-Western, sorry, pro-Russian journalist. As soon as uh, they put a label on a person, it becomes okay to kill him. That's the main problem. The West must open its eyes to what is happening in Ukraine because what is happening is unacceptable. People are being 
jailed for 15 years for having an opinion. That is not normal. Anatoly, just a, a couple of notes on uh, what, what you just mentioned. Uh, first of all, um, I, uh, I, again, I, I just wanted to maybe you could explain what, uh, like how, wh- when did this, uh, uh, this intimidation, uh, harassment, killing uh, of journalists start? I mean, did it start with you? Did it, does it go back to the, uh, the uh, February of 2014 with the, uh, removal of uh, of Yanukovych but I, I was also uh, wanting to get a little bit more because I, I did see a, a report from the BBC uh, about uh, the uh, journalist Oleg Buzan uh, and they did mention that there was these uh, that there were a number of these uh, suspicious uh, killings I there was a report. I, I can't remember what the agency was uh, at the moment, but uh, it, it talked about the, uh, the 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 fact that Buzan had been killed one month after stepping down from his newspaper because he uh, refu- he was refusing to be uh, he he refused the, the the media censorship that he said his newspaper was being imposed on his newspaper from on high. Uh, so I, uh, so you know, it, it seems like you know the, this is an individual who just refused to be. I don't know. It's an interpretation, a kind of a propaganda organ for the state. And one month later, uh, he ends up dead. I, I don't know if that's uh, you see that as a, a coincidence or if there's a direct connection with his stepping down uh, or his outspokenness or just the idea that he's just an independent-minded person. Uh, what is this just uh, an attempt maybe a very brutal fascistic attempt to shut down free speech I will answer the first part of your question first. Under the Yanukovych regime, uh, you were, if you were a political journalist, you were protected, absolutely protected. What I mean by that is the pressure by the government was applied only to the people journalists uh, who were um, going after specific personas. It was, uh, I was practicing social journalism and I was going after Ministry of Internal Affairs. I was going after specific journals. I was publishing fact-based videos. I was publishing videos of soliciting murder that were recording using hidden cameras. Those were very specific reports. Yet, I can't remember people being thrown into jail on completely made-up charges. Back then, they uh, could have passed it as a criminal case. For example, if you did something they did not like, then they might find you to be in possession of some drugs, something along those lines. Right now, I can see people. I can see that people, without any afterthought, are saying that they will throw me into jail because of things I say. And what do I talk about? What do I do? I expose fakes produced by Ukrainian media. I'm currently ranked first among Russian-speaking video bloggers. I've managed to attain such popularity in a matter of a year. This is what gets them, the Ukrainian media, embarrassed. They had made several attempts to get my YouTube channel closed. I was completely shut down three times. I had to get it restored through uh, my lawyers in the United States. 
Then they started to threaten me with reprisals, as it was the case with threats I had received from members of Ukrainian parliament, Bereza and Filatov. Those are two, those are not the least important people in, in Ukrainian parliaments. They, on their Facebook pages, in front of hundreds of thousands of people, had threatened me with murder. That is why the situation had deteriorated. I'm certain that what had happened was an evolution of pressure aimed at the journalists. As for Les Buzina, I indeed, he was the chief editor of Sigodnia. Um, today, uh, newspaper. He had tried in that newspaper under his editorial control to publish objective materials. In other words, today the objective journalism in Ukraine is almost completely banned. You, can't, you must either stick to the party line, similar to what uh, used to happen in USSR, where there was one official line of Communist Party of Soviet Union. If you were to step away from that line, you might start to have problems, or your entire publications application might start to have problems. For this reason, the owner had attempted to frame his work. Alas had left the newspaper. He was murdered soon after. And if you were to read the comments of the officials of the Ukrainian government in social media, you will see that they were saying that, well, things are as they should be. Furthermore, the car used by the killers still had the license plate attached. But the Ukrainian authorities had yet to find the killers. Why? because they don't want uh, those killers um, to be found. They use it as an example for everyone else of what would happen if someone were to cross that proverbial party line. And uh, right now I'm ready to support, and I'm ready to support my words, and I take full responsibility for my words. They, government, have uh, recreated 1937, the time of great purges, perhaps a, even the worst uh, version of it. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Have you noticed those changes since the beginning of February 2014 when the new government came to power? These changes had started to occur during the Maidan revolution. During the revolution, there were constant baseless insinuations, accusations, constant fakes, constant propaganda. And then when new government came into power, the pressure on the journalists had steadily started to increase. I'm curious to know about other players in this whole conflict. I mean, there are the state forces that are uh, in league with the, the, the current government, but you have a lot of other figures influencing things. You've got organized crime, you've got the oligarchs, you've got the uh, Western connections within Ukraine, you've got the uh, Russians probably have their own connections within Ukraine. I'm wondering who all is benefiting from this suppression of freedom of the press and, and freedom of the speech and, and, and the harassment and, and, and uh, uh, intimidation of journalists like yourselves? Is it, is it just the state authorities or are there other figures behind the scenes that could be benefiting and influencing the situation? 
In my opinion, and I'm certain of it, people most interested are central Ukrainian authorities. As you probably know, the power is only strong as long as everyone keeps their silence. And at the moment it's beneficial to keep quiet. Even if you're aware of some crime committed by, let's say, those uh, battalions, territorial or national guard battalions in Donbass region, you're much better off keeping it to yourself. Because if you were to go public, not only would you get noticed by Ukrainian security services, Alternatively, representatives of those battalions may show up and, in worst case, murder you, similar to what had happened a few days ago when law enforcement officers were gunned down in the center of Kiev. Three police officers were gunned down, and that is considering that I had published three reports in regards to those people who then went on to murder the officers. So while I was not keeping quiet, the others were. What's worse, they were turning them into heroes. As it turns out, it's more beneficial to keep your silence, even if it may lead to a murder or have some other colossal consequences. And I'm sure that it benefits the Ukrainian authorities. However, I do not differentiate between Ukrainian government and oligarchs that are in power. The idea behind the revolution was to wrestle control of the state away from the oligarchs. Yet instead, we, we saw governor, well now ex-governor, Kolomoisky, owner of the channel 1 plus 1 in control of several regions. By the way, the complaints launched by that TV station against my YouTube channel had caused it to be destroyed twice. And, of course, all of the outlets for the journalist community are owned by the oligarchs. All of the TV channels are owned by the oligarchs. Fifth channel is owned by Poroshenko. STB belongs to Pinchuk. And, as it turns out, all oligarchs own the TV channels. The only place layperson can find some truth is in the Internet. Yet, if you find a Shari on the Internet, that means the Shari has to be silenced as well. That's my impression. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those uh, journalists who are uh, putting forward uh, information and commentaries that are supportive of the, of the current uh, governing authorities. Uh, could you talk about uh, could you talk about individuals like Elena Asilewa, Asilewa, uh, and uh, just uh, the extent to which uh, their uh, what they're putting forward is being embraced uh, not just by people within Ukraine but the wider. Uh, international press, how how influential have these figures been? I will start from the end. The degree of influence Vasilyeva has became obvious uh, to me when the information she had provided was used in the UN Security Council. That is when I realized how serious things are. I've been fighting with that individual uh, with the fakes that she was disseminating for half a year. I was exposing her fakes. I was showing that those were lies. She was very 
comparing uh, football teams, she was saying complete gibberish. She was quoting UN figures that are nowhere to be found in UN reports. Yet, the Ukrainian media were constantly rebroadcasting her fakery. So, if there was a person to appear who would be saying complete nonsense, which can be easily fact-checked, as long as that nonsense is following in line with the official position of the state, that nonsense would be broadcast by the mainstream media. There were people like her before and after. Some people appear all the time that say things that I refute on my channel. However, Ukrainian channels do not want to publish corrections. What's worse, I see that the situation is deteriorating. For example, Facebook status updates for some anonymous people began appearing on front uh, pages. The value of the information had vanished. It had disappeared. What we see now in, in front of us and a longer mass media, nor journalists, but propagandists who re rebroadcast any nonsense as long as it's beneficial for the government. There is no more journalism in Ukraine. Uh, Anatoly, what about the, uh, in terms of, like, you, you say journalism is dead, but what about uh, prominent bloggers or some of these collectives like antimaidan.com? Do you, are, are you... Uh, do you see those entities as being more reliable or, or, or beginning to approach actual journalism there? Is that, are, are these resources that people can rely on? They are threats, but I don't see them as an alternative. Unfortunately, I do not see bloggers from anti-Maidan as an alternative to journalism because we can't see propaganda on one side and on the other side we see the other propaganda. There are just as many fakes on the other side too. But if for, from one side we supposedly get pro-Ukrainian propaganda, which is really not pro-Ukrainian but pro-state propaganda, then from the other side we see very clear pro-Russian propaganda. I'm not a friend of propagandist. Yes, Yes, the anti-Maidan community has respect for me for certain principles that I have, even though I let uh, and let me repeat myself, uh, to me Ukraine is unitary and Crimea belongs to Ukraine. I cannot use their information as reliable. Um, as let me repeat myself, it's also propaganda. Uh, Anatoly, I'm wondering then, uh, what, what are your thoughts about Western journalists uh, going in there? I mean, Graham Phillips or uh, George Eliasson, uh, you know, people who have, have themselves, you know, people from the West going into Ukraine. Do you feel uh, any more respectful of, of those sorts of individuals? Are, are there, for that matter, are there any prominent uh, journalists uh, from outside who are going in, uh, Russian or Western, that you feel somewhat reliable, are somewhat reliable in terms of what they put forward? About Graham, you see, I respect Graham, and when he was detained at the airport, I was the first to say that he was in trouble. It's unfortunate that he had been detained. Thank God it didn't happen right right now, because I think that today they would have not let him out alive. Yet, when a person starts to openly express his own opinion in his reports and his own definitions of what this or that power, whether or not I have favorable opinion of that power, I consider them to no longer be a pure journalist. For me, uh, there is a pure journalism, 
and non-pure journalism. That's why I do not even call myself a journalism journalist at uh, this moment, because I often express my personal opinions on my blog. Graham deserves respect with, along with Europe, his European colleagues, even if they have pro-Russian position. He deserves the respect because he's often present at the scene. He gives information directly about from the scene. If you were to remove his personal opinions, he provides exceptionally valuable information. Similarly, there are Russian journalists who work there, who undoubtedly, their information undoubtedly, when it ends up with their news channel, is transformed and is broadcast without doubt as propaganda, either in light form or in extreme form. However, the importance of that information to me is that it comes directly from the scene of the events. These people provide exclusive video footage, and Ukrainian TV channels steal that footage and present it as their own. And the reason for that is an absence of Ukrainian journalists in Donbass region, on the separatist-controlled territory. Uh, Anatoly, I wanted to also ask about um, you know, any concerns you have about Western reporting on this, because you have, as I understand it, you have been approached by Western journalists, and uh, they don't seem to be broadcasting what you're saying. At least that's what I understand. What is your... Uh, what is at the heart of, uh, of Western journalists not being able to reliably relay that kind of information? Because they don't seem to be under the gun the same way journalists within Ukraine are, are under the gun. They don't seem to be subjected to the same kind of, of, of death threats and the, that you've been talking about directing towards yourself. What is the motivation for those Western journalists to... Uh, you know, maybe sit on certain stories that should be reported. My attitude towards Western journalists that do work in the Donbass region is without doubt of a complete respect. If they convey the information not through the prism of propaganda, but if they provide pure information. As for the Western mass media, as a whole, first of all, I, I tend to separate mass media into ones from old Europe, uh, the U.S. and Canada are in their separate category, and uh, the ones from the New Europe. For example, I had a personal encounter with journalism from Baltic states. As far as I'm concerned, there is no journalism in Baltic states either, as they do not follow any journal journalistic standards, and they often rebroadcast Ukrainian fakes. Western journalism has its own peculiarities. For example, we hear a statement by President Poroshenko where he declares that a Russian armored column was destroyed. Almost immediately all Western radio stations and all Western TV channels carry his message. However, two days later when I publicly ask uh, them the question, where are, at what coordinates was that column destroyed? I would, I would send my own journalists that work for me to, to that spot. No one can give me an answer. Because that column never existed in the first place. But Western journalists can't imagine that the head of a state would openly lie on, on the air. Perhaps that is a problem. I was asked to give an interview from the Netherlands, and I gave a very long interview. Furthermore, I personally had it translated and sent it to, to them for their convenience. The interview was about the, book mis the missile system suspected of shooting down MH17, and my impression of what had happened there. 
I provided my vision of the events, the interview was never published. After that, the journalist stopped communicating with me. And what I suspect is that there is some politics involved and the information that should not be discussed never makes it on the air. Of course, there are no such threats to the Western journalists as opposed to Ukrainian ones. I had frequently, discu I had frequent discussions with Western journalists. It's a completely different level of professionalism. If they take an interview with you, they will turn you inside out while they sit and simply nod their head. Yet at the same time, those are the people who work for publications, and those publications have owners, and the owners possibly have certain political motivations or interests in specific types of information to never make it into print. That is the only way I see it. Um, Anatoly, do you see the situation um, changing over the next uh, several months, uh, either for the worst or for the better? Undoubtedly, the situation will only deteriorate. I can see this as a reverse evolution. I'm observing this pattern ever since the beginning of Maidan Revolution. I can see how afraid my colleagues are. Many of them had contacted me, journalists who still work for TV channels, and they keep on telling me that they can't release truthful information even if they want to. We can take Channel 112, for example. As soon as they've attempted to publish information just a little bit outside of the bounds of official line, they've immediately received a warning. And if they get another warning, the state regulator will immediately have their license pulled. Inter-TV channel used to be different as well. They used they are under pressure too. Newspaper Vesti had their office burned down and no one was found responsible. As for the newspapers that they distribute, some people in ski masks show up and steal those. It happens all the time. That's why I do not see the situation improving. I'm certain the situation will continue to deteriorate as long as West is turning the blind eye. West should not be blind to what is happening. These are not some form of childish horseplay. These are murders we're dealing with. People are really being thrown into jail. Ruslan Katsaba is sitting in jail. And for what? For nothing but his position. He had never called for anything illegal. He had simply voiced his position. And now he's being accused of high treason. This is complete legal nihilism. The only force that can exert some influence over Ukraine is the Western society. And no one else. No one else can influence the situation. That is why I'm waiting for the West to take a notice of what's going on. Um, so, Anatoly, I, I also wanted to ask you, because you mentioned earlier about how this, the pattern of... Uh, an intimidation and deaths um, that that it recalls the, the the 1937 period. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you're witnessing in in this society today that recalls the events of of 1937. 
No doubt the situation is that even people that have an opposite position are afraid to speak out. Because of their own fear, they attempt to hide in the crowds. When everybody in the crowd starts shouting glory to the nation or death to the enemies, um, then you start to shout the same thing as well, not because you agree with but because you are afraid. We have seen this in 1937. We remember what happened in Nazi Germany. Millions of people were persuading themselves, pushing their own fear into subconsciousness, that they like or approve what is happening around them. They were sincerely happy with executions, or that tens or hundreds or thousands of dissidents were thrown into jail, like we see right now in Ukraine. They believed. They projected an impression uh, that they believed that someone was guilty of acts of terrorism. Today in Ukraine, as many as 20 to 30 terrorists are detained every day. I do not believe that those terrorists are actually real. Um, I do not believe that accused were attempting to up blow up a bridge or assault a member of, of the government or to make an attempt on the life of the president. All of the above are carbon copy of 1937. Plus, today in Ukraine, Ukraine, it became very popular to be an anonymous informant. People write anonymous accusations, people are asked to write anonymous accusations. People accuse their neighbors. In Mariupol, after it was occupied by Azov Battalion, the security service had quite a harvest because the neighbors were writing about their neighbors. If someone didn't like someone, they would just make an accusation, saying so-and-so had cooperated with a separatist or shared separatist ideas. Obviously, such practices are outside of the law. Yet, in Ukraine today, it's considered to be very honorable to be an anonymous accuser, to inform that other clear... That's the other clear analogy that I see with 1937. Um, Anatoly, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add uh, in, that, that, that our listeners really need to know about that will help them understand the, uh, the situation uh, with, with journalism and, and suppression of freedom uh, of speech and freedom of the press in Ukraine that, that we haven't mentioned yet that you'd like to share? I think I have said everything. As for the situation with human rights, well, I can be an example. I have to change my addresses every other day. I can't use the phone. I have to use special programs that change IP address to access the Internet. And for what? I have done nothing illegal. If I did, believe me, the Interpol would have had already been looking for me. And I would have been extradited a long time ago. People are wanted for speaking the truth. People have to hide and be afraid for their life. Not because they suffer from paranoia, but because they see how their friends get murdered on the streets of so-called European state. That's why I believe that others, that other examples are redundant. I can see on my own example just how far the freedom of speech had advanced in Ukraine. Okay, uh, Anatoly, one, one last question for you, if you don't mind. Uh, the uh, the uh, there was a website uh, Peacekeeper, I believe it was called, and it was endorsed by Groshenko, and uh-huh. and it was uh, used to uh, uh, essentially it was posting information about the the, the people who were murdered, and uh, there was it was somehow used to uh, 
as a, a crowdsourcing tool. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, Website Miratvoritz, or Peacekeeper, uh, was set up a few months ago uh, with active participation of advisor to the Minister of Internal Affairs, Drashenko, and with active participation, as far as I understand, of Ukrainian security services, because all of their branches have their homepages hosted as advertisements on that website. The personal information had started to appear on it soon after, including phone numbers, home addresses, including names of children, of people who someone thought were the terrorists. They were accused of being terrorists. In fact, I had been contacted by people who had their information posted on the website, and it turned out to be the people who were practicing sports shooting, uh, who live in Russia and had never left Russian territory. One person contacted me from Siberia who had never left his village, and he was also listed on the website as a Russian terrorist. Then they started to post information about people uh, whose opinion they didn't like. Oleg Buzina had his information listed there. Uh, they had listed his home address, which I believe had really helped his killers. And he was murdered the very next day. Uh, the former member of parliament from Regions Party had his information posted there, and he was also murdered the next day. After Buzina was murdered, my information was posted as well. But they didn't know my address, so they listed me as homeless. Uh, so I've decided to strike back. I've decided to pay them with the same coin. So I've published in my video blog personal information of the creator of the website. The very next day the pressure on me had increased. I was accused of financing terrorism, but I've continued to fight against that website. I've contacted the human rights organization. I've received no reply. However, I suppose someone in the West had noticed it because the Ukrainian ombudsman had reacted and she released a statement saying that this is illegal and the people behind the website should bear the responsibility. No one can be called a criminal without court's decision. The principle of presumption of innocence cannot be suspended in one single country. So the website has serious problems right now and those government officials involved are trying to distance themselves away from it. Yet some time ago it was actively promoted by main Ukrainian mass media. Anatoly, there was information about this girl posted there. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, yes, I had noticed that girl too. They published her information. She was 12 years old and they called her enabler and supporter of terrorists. And published her home address. The girl is 12 years old. I found her and I contacted her. That girl turned out to be a very sick child, a physically sick child. So they have started to publish personal information of sick children. Anatoly, I'm done now. Placiba, uh, thank you very much for... Uh, for sharing these thoughts with us, and, and thank you for uh, your patience through this uh, entire, entire uh, uh, process. Thank you very much. It uh, would be a pleasure for me to give you any kind of commentaries you would like, um, and I hope that West will finally start paying attention. Thank you very much. You just heard from Anatoly Shari. Ukrainian journalist living in exile in Lithuania, speaking to us in an interview recorded May 7th, 2015. Friday, May 8th, 
marks the 70th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day, or VE Day. This occasion is as significant for Russians as for Western Europeans. Russians paid a heavy price for the victory over the Nazi forces. In late March, to commemorate the occasion, the 35th anniversary of the U.S.-Russia Forum was held in Washington, D.C. This event was committed to what it called moving the American establishment in the direction of a fact-based reasoned assessment of genuine Russia security interests and the reality of American and NATO aggression towards Russia, and was dedicated to the 70th anniversary of the Allied victory in World War II. We have a clip from that public event featuring Robert Perry of Consortium News addressing the media silence over developments in Ukraine. I guess I, guess I should start off by just saying that um, I've been a journalist in this city since 1977. I've worked for the Associated Press and Newsweek and Public Broadcasting's Frontline, as well as um, starting ConsortiumNews.com and as an investigative website. And I have to say that in all these years, I can't think of a time when there has been a groupthink as single-minded as the one we've seen over the past year or so regarding the Ukraine crisis. And this is not to say that there weren't some pretty awful and destructive group things that preceded this one. But I've just never seen a moment when so little questioning has occurred about something as important as whether or not there'll be a second Cold War, whether there'll be a possible nuclear confrontation between the United States and Russia that might conceivably end all life on the planet. There's been a a cavalier attitude, and not just uh, where you might expect it on some of the TV shows, but you've seen it at the very heart of the most prestigious uh, news organizations in the United States. I would say most particularly the New York Times, but certainly the Washington Post and others fall into this. Now, as I said, I came to Washington in 1977, and that was a time when um, it's hard to say that that was a golden age of American journalism, but it was a time when the American press corps asked tough questions, did not accept easy government answers, when uh, the press broke through on many government lies, whether it be the Pentagon Papers, the publication of, of, of the secret history of the Vietnam War, whether it was not accepting uh, Richard Nixon's uh, uh, blasé explanations for the Watergate break-in, uh, whether, it was, whether it was penetrating into the Central Intelligence Agency's secrets, the uh, so-called family jewels. And so we had seen how the American press corps could work and how, I would say, our founding fathers envisioned it. Uh, this is not to say things were perfect, they were far from it, but it was a time when the press understood I think the basic responsibility they had to the American people, the implicit agreement that was in the First Amendment, that it's our job to ask those kinds of questions. And even if people don't like us for doing it, even if they call us names for doing it, that, that's still our job. And there's also this idea that I learned uh, when I was at the AP and even before that, that there are usually two sides to a story. That you shouldn't assume just one side has all the truth, the other side is completely dishonest. I'm not saying that doesn't happen from time to time, but in my experience, there usually, almost always, is a, is a second side to a story, something that journalists should want to know. I used to interview, I used to interview some of the um, more despicable people on the face of the earth when I was working for AP and, and Newsweek and PBS. I 
spend time with Roberto Dobuson, ahead of a, uh, some of the death squads in, in, in El Salvador. My job wasn't to judge him. My job was to figure out what made him tick. And, and I think what we've seen lost in this era now, where, we, where we've come to uh, the situation in Ukraine, is that from the very beginning, this was presented in a one-sided way, uh, that the, uh, the, the anti-Yanukovych forces had all the truth and honor and decency, and the forces on the side of Yanukovych were evil and corrupt and rotten and had to be overthrown. And there was all simple black and white, almost cartoon-like. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.